Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there in Nehemiah chapters 12 and 13. The book of Nehemiah has been, in some ways, a very fast-moving book. In the, <clears throat> the chapters up to verse 4 or verse 3 of chapter 13 just covers a period of several months. And within that period, um, a type of revival has happened amongst the community. They had been downcast, downhearted. But a century before Nehemiah's time, the People have come back from the captivity in Babylon with high hopes, but their their anticipations had not been realized, and the city was in, I suppose, a state of doldrums. Nothing seemed to be happening of any significance. They hadn't even managed to build the wall to make the city secure. There was very, very few people living in it. And what's the point of a city if nobody lives in it? And uh, the temple, which was the center of the, of the city, well, it was not given any priority. So uh, things were a bit dire. And I suppose looking at it from the outside, and given the trajectory that was there, and we should always look at trajectories, uh, given the trajectory that was there, things seemed to be getting worse. And I suppose we could have looked at it and said, how many will this take to solve? And in this particular case, it took one man. Um, one man, Nehemiah. Somebody once said to D.L. Moody, nobody has yet seen what God can do through one man who is totally dedicated to him. don't know what you'd have said in response to that. I said that's an interesting statement. Moody said, I'll be the man. We can look back and say, whatever he did, and he did a lot of good things, we can still say, no one has yet seen what God can do through one person that's dedicated to it. I suppose we could take it down even lower than that. No one has yet seen what can happen in one street, what God can do through one person who's dedicated to it. Whatever else Nehemiah tells us, he tells us it can be done. 
The people of Israel, as we've seen, they renewed their covenant with God. They took seriously the promise they had made to be his people. One of the problems of, of speaking about divine grace is that we deduce that God should do everything. Whereas the reality of divine grace is that God can enable people to do things. It's certainly the case with regard to salvation that God must do everything. But is that the case with the progress of his kingdom? The people of God, there in Jerusalem, they recovered their vitality, we might say, and they not only renewed the covenant with God and said to him, you are our God and we are your people, they also had this great day of dedication, of celebration, that the wall had been built. And as we saw the previous week, that was a very happy time, as we can even see at the end of verse 43, that such was the atmosphere of the city that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I mean, that's an incredible statement, isn't it? When we actually think about it, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, there were about 50,000 people celebrating, <laughs> but still, it was heard far away. I suspect it's not just the sound that was heard. It was the news of it was heard. Something had happened to them. And everyone realized it. It's a bit like the early church, isn't it, in Jerusalem? The book of Acts. It's incredible the number of times the word joy occurs in the book of Acts. As we think about this event in Jerusalem, this spiritual recovery, this possession of incredible joy, this city experiencing the Lord's favor, we are entitled to ask, aren't we, how long did it last? What were the outcomes? What happened? Well, we read the outcomes. And I'd just like us to think about the outcomes. There's good outcomes and there's bad outcomes. According to the passage, there's two good outcomes and four bad outcomes. So we can think of them briefly and then just look at some lessons that we can learn. The good outcomes. 
they happened immediately. Because there we can see that from uh, verse 44 of chapter 12 and verse 1 of chapter 13. Because both these outcomes are to begin with on that day. That's the day of their celebration, the day of their dedication of the wall. On that day, they did two things, both of which were very good and indicated that they were eager to serve God. And we might um, think about the first one. Well, it's not that important, but it's not us who's assessing the importance. The one who's assessing the importance is the one who wrote the book. And behind Nehemiah, who knows God. And God is telling us that he thinks, or he thought, that these two responses were very good. The first one, as you can see from verses 44 to 47, was they just appointed supervisors of the storerooms. And I suppose they were a bit like deacons, I suppose. I don't know. They were supervisors of the storerooms. And their task was to look after the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes that all the people gave according to God's law in order for the priests and the Levites to serve God in the, in the temple. And they had a kind of um, dedication service there in verse 45 as they performed it and purified it and sanctified and set the people apart for this task and including also the ones who led the praise, the singers and the gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are very important. They were the security agents of the temple. I mean, when David says, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord, he's not referring to a menial task. They were the guards of the, of the temple. And they are being mentioned here, it's all being, um, this arrangements are being made for them to serve God. And we can see in verse 44, at the end of verse 44, that this was an expression of joy. Nehemiah had said to them, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And here they are, appointing storerooms, men of supervisors of the storerooms, and they're all rejoicing. This is great, marvelous, a sign of God's favor. That's the first good outcome. Arrangements were made for the future. We have to bear that in mind because it's referred to again in the next chapter. For something bad happened. But anyway, on this particular day, it was a good sign that these supervisors had been appointed. Then in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13, there's 
another good sign. It so happened that they were reading, this was in a public way by the Levites, they were reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think it is, about this particular point, and in it they found that God had said that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. The reason for that is explained there in verse 2, that when the children of Israel were nearing the borders of the promised land, when they came out of Egypt, uh, they asked the people of Moab and Ammon, could they pass through their country, and they wouldn't let them. Instead, they arranged, but they hired Balaam to come and curse them. And instead of Balaam cursing them, of course, he actually was compelled to bless them. But rather, sadly for these people groups, God reversed the curse, which is quite a solemn thing, really, isn't it? They wanted Israel to be cursed, and it turned out the other way around. And it doesn't mean that a Moabite or an Ammonite, if they repented, couldn't join in God's worship. I mean, Ruth was a Moabitess. And when she uh, abandoned her pagan background and became a worshiper of the God of Israel, she was allowed to come into the gathering of God's people. And as we know, she even became an ancestor of Jesus. But as long as they persisted in their, in their uh, outlook, they were not allowed in. And of course, it was a real danger with these people because they were kind of related. I mean, they were sort of kinship to the Israelites through Lot. So it's... Um, it's a separation that God approves of. He has said in his word, don't do it. And here they were hundreds of years later, and they just read in the book of Moses that they should do this. And what is rather striking about it, and I think it's something that is quite challenging in the 21st century, and it is that they had unquestioning obedience. I mean, that really is quite striking, isn't it? Unquestioning obedience. Somebody could have said, well, this, this applies to events hundreds of years ago. What's that got to do with us? Well, the answer is God said it. And so... That was two good outcomes. God was pleased. The people were happy. And if the book of Nehemiah finished at the end of verse 3 of chapter 13, it would indicate they lived happy ever after. But the book doesn't end at the end of verse 3. What ends at the end of verse 3 is Nehemiah's first term as governor. He's been there for 12 years. He mentions that in verse 6. The words now before this, at the start of verse 4, 
when we read that, we might think it's referring to the previous verses. But it doesn't. The now before this at the start of verse 4 refers to what happened before Nehemiah uh, came back from Babylon, which he mentions in verse 6. At the end of verse 3, Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for 12 years. We know that because it says in verse 6 that in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, he went back to see him. Chapter 2, verse 1 says he arrived in Jerusalem in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So he's been in Jerusalem for 12 years. The book of Nehemiah, up to verse 3 of chapter 13, describes the first seven or eight months. Nothing is said about the next 11 years. Which would give the impression that everything just carried on the way it should have done. And when Nehemiah went away, there was no reason for him to be worried about anything. Then he came back. Not told how long he was away for. He came back to Jerusalem. And what did he find? The city who had remade its covenant with God. The city who had their joyful day of dedication and celebration. How were things now? Well, Nehemiah tells us there were at least four things wrong. Four things that disturbed him greatly. We'll just think about them briefly. First one there is this man, Eliashib, mentioned there in verses 4 to 9. Eliashib is a high priest. He's the man in charge of the temple. If one would expect anybody to be faithful in Jerusalem, this is the man. After all, he had been involved in the building of the wall. And going by the accounts of him in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, he was very enthusiastic in building the wall. But as we know, a person's enthusiasm in the past means nothing in the present. And here's Eliashib. And what's he doing? You know, he hasn't really been mentioned very much since chapter 3. Which could tell us that Nehemiah didn't really trust him. And we can see from what he did in verses 4 to 9 that Nehemiah would have been right not to trust him. What does Eliashib do? Well, he's in charge of the temple courts. And he decides to give one of the rooms to his relative Tobiah. Who is Tobiah? Well, he's mentioned in the first couple of chapters of Nehemiah as one of his main enemies. He's the man who said about the wall, 
If a fox runs on it, it will collapse. Where is he now, this man Tobiah? Why is he wanting this big room in the temple courtyards? Why is he wanting this place of prominence when Nehemiah is away? Well, we can all make our suggestions about that. I mean, Tobiah is a renegade Jew. I mean, Tobiah is a, Jew, is a Jewish name. But he's actually the ruler of the Ammonites. And we've just been told about, about them towards the end of chapter 3 that it's not good to have contact with them. But here, Eliashib, the man who is in charge of the worship of God, he lets the enemy in does it quite freely. We even discover he's related to him. The thing that had been forbidden at the end of chapter 13, or the start of chapter 13, the good thing that had been organized, the man at the top is now practicing it. How does Nehemiah assess this? Well, we can see in verse 8 he was very angry. And he, he didn't wait to get the local furniture removal company to get rid of Tobias furniture. He just threw it all out. And we might say that's bad enough or strong enough but then we're told in um, in verse 9 that he purified it which tells us that he regarded Eliashib's actions as sacrilege it wasn't just a little blip of renting out a room. It was something that was dangerous, something that defiled, something that was really disturbing. Eliashib was a traitor. So that's one bad outcome. The second bad outcome is described in verses 10 to 13. And this has got to do with the, the supervisors that were appointed at the end of chapter 12. The ones who are meant to ensure that the, the items that the people gave through their tithing was handed out to the appropriate people. And when the Nehemiah comes back from seeing Artaxerxes in Babylon, he finds that all that has stopped. What they had been so happy about, what had brought them such great joy, no longer happens. 
Nehemiah probably hasn't been away for a long time. But he comes back and he just discovers that the Levites and the singers, who were essential for the function of the temple, they had to leave the city and go back to their fields. The worship of God has disappeared. Because the people who are meant to do it aren't there. And the reason why they're not there is because the supervisors, the officials as they're called, in verse 11, they had caused the house of God to be forsaken by mismanaging what had been given to them to do. Nehemiah, well, he didn't call a committee meeting to deal with it. He just immediately um, confronted them and made, got the Levites back in at the end of verse 11 and then the ties and everything else were put under new individuals to look after them, as they're mentioned there in verse 13, and things were sorted out. And Nehemiah, as was his example, in verse 14 there, prays earnestly. These two issues that had just been raised about Eliashib and his renting out the room and that of the Levites not being provided with whatever they were meant to be given, they had been attacks on the worship of God. The city that had been full of joy had lost it all. And here they were and if Nehemiah hadn't come back, where would they have been? And in verse 14, he realizes that. And we can see his prayer to God. And it's a sad prayer in many ways. Because he is not able to pray, do not wipe out our good deeds. All he can say in verse 14 is, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He had come back to a situation where he discovered that all the good he had done had been reversed. But he knew what to do, which basically was sorted out and pray. Maybe at the end of chapter, sorry, end of verse 3 of chapter 13, it should have been said. And they all set up regular prayer meetings. But we're not told that they did that, are we? It was a 
two things in the temple, bad outcomes. But how about outside the temple? Well, we're told two things about that as well. And the first one there is in verses 11 to 22. And it's all about communal Sabbath breaking. He comes back to the city and he actually finds that the wall is useless. The wall that he had built with all its gates. It's useless. No one's keeping the... No one is stopping the evil coming in, which was the whole point of the wall. But there they are, and uh, he sees the Sabbath uh, being uh, disrupted, and such was the change in the short time that he had been away, that even there in verse 16, there's new inhabitants in the city. People from Tyre have now moved in with their business enterprises. And they're contributing to the disappearance of the Sabbath. And that appalls Nehemiah. And he confronts the rulers there in verses 17 because they're to blame. He confronts the rulers and he says to them, basically, do you not remember what happened in the past? Profaning the Sabbath, did not our fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us? I mean, there's a real sense in which the whole captivity in Babylon was because of how they treated the Sabbath. I mean, that's why they had 70 years to do with the number seven. He's come back after a short time. And the city of joy is now the city of Sabbath breaking. What a dramatic change. But being Nehemiah, he just sorts it out immediately. As we can see there from verses 21 and 22. And he takes the gatekeepers from the temple and makes them stand on guard at the gates of the city on the Sabbath. And we can see again as he thinks about this, after he has done it, he makes it a matter of prayer. In verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Why does he ask to be spared? Well, it's only a suggestion. But I think it's because he realizes there's no one else that will stand up. Spare me. So this reforms, if you want to put it that way, will last. That's one problem in the community of the city of joy. 
What's the other problem? Well, it's, it's the one that they dealt with at the end, at the start of chapter 13, with regard to the people around them. Ammon and Moab, their daughters. Except now the Ashdod is added in verse 20, 23. And there's a startling outcome in verse 24. In the few short years, if it even was that long, that Nehemiah has been away, all the children cannot speak the language of Judah. Instead, they're speaking the language of uh, their pagan mothers. And there's a powerful message there, isn't there? He let paganism in. It takes over. And this particular issue as we can see from verse 28 Eliashib's grandson who was a priest he's actually involved in all this there's almost been a complete reversal of everything and again in verse 29 what does Nehemiah do? Well, it's kind of solemn what he does in verse 29. Because in his prayer, he puts them into the hands of God. Remember them. No longer remember me. Remember them, oh my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so he cleansed them from everything foreign, as he says there. And I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Then he prays. Remember me, O my God, for good. And thus he says goodbye to us. We know nothing else about Nehemiah. What lessons can we learn? Well, perhaps the obvious one is that spiritual decline happens very quickly. I think sometimes we're under the illusion that it takes a long time. When does spiritual decline start? When it starts. That's true at an individual level. You can't be in a half state of spiritual decline. We're either declining or not. Can happen to churches. Can happen to denominations. 
can happen to countries. It happened to the city of joy. It doesn't seem to have crossed Nehemiah's mind when he went back to see Artaxerxes that when he would then come back to Jerusalem it would be in a mess. But it was. Spiritual decline can happen very quickly. Book of Judges tells us that. So does the Orthodox Church of Ephesus. The, the church that engaged in all kinds of attempts to make it itself a very good church. But in all their activities, they lost their first love. They just declined. It happened very quickly. An individual can be on fire for God today and down the hill tomorrow. We're either growing or we're going back. There's no halfway. That's one important lesson. Another one, of course, is that sometimes a leader has to act alone. Who could Nehemiah wait for to help him? Where were they? I mean, some of the ones who had marched round the wall on the day of dedication must have still been alive. They were no longer marching around the wall. So sometimes a leader has to stand by himself. A third lesson, of course, is the necessity of righteous anger. Virtually every thing I've read about Nehemiah stresses how out of sync he is with our culture. Because we don't get angry at anything. But he was angry. Indeed, he says, he was very angry. If I don't get angry, that's sin. There's something wrong with me. That goes for everyone. There's also the another lesson we can learn. Stop in a minute, but prayer. What's the message of chapter thirteen? What keeps happening in chapter 13? <coughs> Nehemiah's prayers. He just prays about everything. Whatever it is, it becomes a matter of prayer. I think God is saying to us in that, isn't he? He's saying to us, don't pray about things in general. 
Anybody can do that. That takes 10 seconds. Rather, he's saying to us through Nehemiah, pray about everything separately. Prayer, not just to kickstart the city of joy, but to keep it joyful. The last thing I want to mention is, Nehemiah had the privilege of serving two emperors. One of them governed some territory on earth and died a few years later. The other emperor was the eternal God. Nehemiah was devoted to both according to the demands of each situation. But as we look at Nehemiah's character, who else in the Bible is like him? It's a serious question. Who else in the Bible is like him? For his faithfulness to God. A remarkable man. The kind of man I would suggest, or the kind of person that we need in our society. Shall we pray?